0: If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to be reading from 1 Corinthians 3, unpacking it. And I want to start by asking a question. Are you spiritually mature? And how do you even answer that question? We're going to get, this going to be a question that's going to be in front of us all morning, uh, this morning. Are you spiritually mature? Today's text gives you a lens through which to look to answer that question. So uh, that's exciting. But it's a really worthy question, isn't it? Are you somebody who is spiritually mature? Because we would answer that question probably in a lot of different ways in this room. One thing that we do and one thing that I want to have in front of us as we explore this question is there's a quote right up there from... Okay, I think Theodore Roosevelt. The internet says it probably was Theodore Roosevelt, but then they also attribute it to other people. But since he was president, was he president? He was president, right? Let's give it to the president. Let's just let him be the guy who said this. Here's what he said. Comparison is the thief of joy. When we think about our spiritual maturity, I want us this morning to think about it through the lens of, do you compare yourself to other people? And if you do, why? What is it that you're looking for? What are you hoping to find? There's lots of ways we do this. We do this through parenting. If you have kids, you compare yourself as a parent to other parents. You compare yourself as a parent to other people's kids. My kids are better than their kids, ergo, I'm a better dad. Right? Or, why can't my kids be like their kids? I'm a bad dad. We do this through marital status. We compare ourselves in terms of our material wealth, our talents and our gifts and what we're good at. Our Physical bodies, is that not the case? We compare ourselves to others by our bodies, by our intellect, by our families of origin, by our race. And the list goes on and on and on, the ways that we compare ourselves to other people. But taking the good president's quote here, can you ever think of a time in your life when you have been engaged in comparing yourself to somebody else, and the fruit of that was that it brought you a sense of peace and joy. Can you think of a time when that actually produced peace or joy in your life? Because I can't. It's misery. It's misery. So then why do we do it? If we brought a microphone over here, open mic, and said, whoever wants to just get up and share why you compare yourself to other people, how many of you think, I could get up and answer that question right now. Or would you perhaps like me say, I don't really know why I do that. I don't know what it is exactly. And the question of that then is, why are we so out of touch with why we do the things that we do? And that's a good question. When we compare our lives to other people's lives, we're looking for something. Some kind of assessment that tells us how we're doing or what we're worth or where we stand. But can anybody else answer that question for you sufficiently? Is there any hope of anyone ever answering that question for you? What you're worth, where you stand, how you're doing? Paul, writing here to the Corinthian church, is writing to a group of young believers and they're divided. And we've been seeing it all along. And more importantly, they're dividing themselves. And in chapter three, Paul is drawing together everything that he's been talking about in the first two chapters. If you've been here for the other studies in 1 Corinthians, you're going to see he's still on the same themes. He's drawing them together now. There's not time for us to deal with everything that there is in 1 Corinthians 3, and perhaps we'll have an opportunity maybe to come back and deal with uh, another theme or two from this chapter, but we're going to focus on this issue of why we compare ourselves And what it is that we feel like we need when we're doing that. And how does the gospel answer that for us? So I'm going to read parts of 1 Corinthians 3. And I'm telling you, friends, that I'm asking this morning, and I've been praying all week, that we would have a willingness this morning to go down the rabbit hole of this discussion. To go perhaps deeper than we've let our minds go, maybe ever. Ever in thinking about this, okay? So, so I'm gonna read the text, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 9, and then jump over to 18 to 23, and then we're gonna dig in. This is Paul writing, "'I, brothers, could not address you "'as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, "'as infants in Christ, and I fed you with milk "'and not solid food, because you weren't ready for it. "'And even now you're not ready, "'for you are still of the flesh.'" For while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, and another, I follow Cephas, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They're servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, you're God's building. And then he jumps down to, I jump down to 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. Let's pray. Father, illuminate your word for us this morning. Take us deeper into these questions of why we compare ourselves to other people and how profoundly antithetical that is to the gospel that tells us that our identity and our worth is found in you. Lord, would you give us a courage of heart that perhaps we have never known in this room to explore the depth of why we do the things that we do that are opposed to the grace that you give us through your Son. And would you then lead us, Lord, this morning to be people who rest in that grace and who find our identity and our worth in you and that we know that it is secure and stable already. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. Paul here is writing to friends, people that he knows, but Don't let this be lost on you. He's writing to more than just friends. These are people who are a lot like us, a lot like Midtown Fellowship. And what do I mean by that? These people that Paul is writing to, these are young believers who represent a movement of the gospel of Jesus Christ in their city. That's who they are. They're people who represent a movement of the gospel in Corinth. And we've talked about how Corinth and Nashville are very similar. And the believers in Corinth and Midtown Fellowship share some profound things in common as well. It's our prayer and our hope that Midtown Fellowship would be a place, a part of a gospel movement that results not only in a profound transformation in you and me, but in this city that we love. We're contending for the same things. So we have a lot in common, but are we maybe also similar to these believers in Corinth in terms of our spiritual maturity? What does Paul say in the beginning of this chapter? I mean, you, we read it, you saw the words go by. He says, brothers, I couldn't write to you like you were spiritual people. I, I treat you like you're infants in Christ. And the content that I'm giving you, the content of the gospel, my interactions with you is very much at a base level. It's like milk because you're not ready for spiritual food because you're so fleshy. Paul, understand, he's saying this to them as somebody who knows them and loves them. He is not just chewing them out. He's trying to tell them something specific and we're gonna see what that is. Saying you've got this quality about you as a fellowship that is telling you, that is telling me that you are spiritual babies. What is that quality? I mean, think about it. (laughs) Is that an insult? I mean, how would you feel if if your planting pastor stood in front of you and said, "I, I was working on what I was gonna say to you this morning. And I just revised it a bunch of times because there was stuff in there that was just too heavy for you. You're not ready for it yet. So I've scaled it back because you're infants. You're babies. Spiritual babies. And uh, that's how, I mean, that's what he's doing, right? he's what he's saying to them. Which begs the question, doesn't it? What constitutes spiritual maturity? What makes someone spiritually mature? Thoughts? Ideas? I'll open it up. What makes somebody spiritually mature? Not a hypothetical question. An actual question where you give me answers. What's that? Humility, Humility. okay, yep. What else? Okay, consistency of a prayer relationship. Obedience, yeah. I'll give you some more. Devotional frequency we've talked about. What about this? How long you've been a Christian? The person who's been a Christian for 20 years is more spiritually mature than the person who's been a Christian for five years. No? There's hope for us this morning. (laughs) What about this, though? Here's a stopper. A general sense of pride that you are of a place intellectually where you can look at a particular contingent of American Christianity and say, "Oh, those people—they <laughs> don't—they have their heads in the sand. They don't know what they're doing." I am not a conservative evangelical. <laughs> That's—it's so silly, so naive. Is that spiritual maturity? Let's take that a little bit further. What about, um, you know, your approach to Christian liberty? Spiritual maturity equals I do not drink. It's a stumbling block to people. I don't drink. Or Christian maturity, I drink. I drink. And I have reasons why I drink. The gospel frees me to drink. People who don't drink because of some sort of moral conscience or crisis are not as spiritually mature as me. We have all these criteria that we can put around spiritual maturity, What does it look like? And it's easy for us to think that spiritual maturity can be seen in the intellect of a person or in their devotional habits or in some kind of hard to explain but obvious to see display of inner peace and tranquility and they're just always kind of doing okay. What does Paul say though? This should blow our minds because what he says is, you're spiritually immature and here's how I know. Your relationships with each other are messed up. I want you to see it. I want you to see it in verses one through four. He says, it didn't address you as spiritual people, but as infants, I fed you with milk, not solid food, and you're still not ready. Why? Verse three, because while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in a human way? Verse four, you say, some of you say, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, and Paul is saying, those are evidence to me that you're spiritual babies, that you have jealousy and strife and comparison ruling over your relationships with each other. Do you see it? Let me ask you a question. What if? What if this is not a small point that Paul is making? What if this is everything? What if this is such a big point? What if the reason we... Embroider 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, is because Paul is writing this letter to contend with these young believers that you're not going to grow in Christ if you don't love each other. And I have to spell out for you what love is. You don't even know what love is. Which tells us Paul's tricking him a little bit here when he's saying, I didn't give you, I just gave you milk. And then, what, 16 chapters later, 18 chapters later, he's finished? With this letter, he's given them a lot to chew on. But what if, what if the indicator, what if the, one of the primary indicators of your spiritual maturity is seen in the health of your relationships with others? I'm here to tell you that is profoundly biblical. Why? Because Jesus said it. What did he say? John 13, 35. He said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you What? love each other. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples, that you love each other. Are you starting to see how we need to go down this rabbit hole? Are you starting to see how important this is for you? Why then, why then do you seek to find your sense of worth and identity in how you're better than somebody else and think that that is somehow giving you an advantage spiritually? or relationally, when what it's really doing is it's putting you in the opposite corner of the ring of somebody that you're called to love and to love at all costs and to love in the middle of their brokenness. Paul is calling every Christian in the world who reads these words out on a point. And the point is this. Are you finding your spiritual maturity in how you're better than people around you? Or are you finding your spiritual maturity in the health of your relationships with the people around you? And those are two different things. Those are two really, really different things. We need to go down this rabbit hole because Paul is telling them, you have a foundation under you that is immovable. A foundation that tells you who you are, what you're worth, where you stand forever. And that foundation is the finished work of Christ. He puts it this way in Romans 8. He says that your identity is already, already so immovably set that, Romans 8, neither height nor depth, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's that definitive where you stand, the foundation. And then he says, and it's not just a foundation we're talking about here, but it's also as you grow on that foundation, that too is not your job. That's the work of God. And what's he say in verses six and seven? He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And so neither he who plants or he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. So the foundation on which your identity rests is Christ. Christ. The force behind your spiritual growth in your life is also Christ. You are hemmed in by him. But we go off that reservation and we try to find other ways to declare to the world and even to God and to ourselves that doggone it, I am worth something and I'm wonderful. When that's what the gospel is telling us the whole time but it's not about my performance or how I compare. Do you believe this? Do you believe that the only one who is growing you up is God? Or do you believe that this is somehow your job? It's important. It's important for you to answer that question because if you believe that this is up to you, guess what? You are going to spend the rest of your days on earth finding your worth in how you compare to other people, and that will be what tells you how you're doing. And why is this? Because inside us, we believe that the story about what my life is worth, who I am, is a story that doesn't have an ending yet, and I have to write that ending. And that makes us fiercely competitive. It's like we're stuck in a choose-your-own-adventure story. Remember choose-your-own-adventure stories? You know what I'm talking about? They have them today now. I've seen them recently. They are not anywhere near as cool as they were when I was a kid. They have a different name now, which doesn't make any sense to me because it was fine. Choose your own adventure. That's what you're doing. But you know, you're running. There's a dragon and he's chasing you and you come to the edge of a cliff and there's only two things you can do. There's a cave, but in the cave, there's something growling in the darkness and then there's the cliff and there's a river beneath and it says, hey, hey, If you want to go into the growling cave, turn to page 73. If you want to jump off the cliff into the water and take your chances, turn to page 25. And so you think, what do I do? What do I do? And you turn to page 25 and you jump off the cliff and you land and you discover that it was only six inches of water and you're dead. And that's the end of the book. And you think, why didn't I go into the cave? It was probably just a bear who, who had plenty of food. And he was just grumbling because he was happy about how much food he had. And he, and he wanted to be domesticated. And he was wanting to fight a dragon. And, but we get into that, right? And we think, I could so easily screw this up. My life is like a tub of water. And that water is my worth. And if I'm not careful, I might pull that plug and it'll all drain out. And then what? This is not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is you don't determine your worth, ever, God does that, it's a hard word. It's a hard word because none of us in this room, none of us in this room go as deep into that rabbit hole as we could. So let's go a little deeper. Matthew seven, Sermon on the Mount. Perhaps you've heard people use this or you've read it. Jesus says, why do you pay attention to the speck in your brother's eye and ignore the log that is in your own? Why do you do that? What is he saying? Is Jesus saying you have exponentially more sin in your life than your brother and you don't see it? It's not what he's saying. I'm happy to tell you I don't have more sin in my life than you do. I don't have more brokenness in my life than you have. We're all just really, really broken. What he's saying is this. There's something really, really wrong if you are ever more aware of somebody else's brokenness and sin than you are of your own. Something really, really, really wrong. That if I let me give you an example. If you lie to me, and I know it, I know you lied. And I might even have guesses as to why you lied that could give me empathy or maybe a way to challenge you or maybe things that I would say to you in anger. But if I lie to you, I ought to be able to dive into the deep end of what fears and insecurities and ambitions and felt needs were working that were leading me to conclude that building our relationship on a foundation of dishonesty was somehow better or more necessary than telling you the truth. I should be able to look into my heart before the Lord and to ask this question, what does my lie get me that the truth can't? What is it? What is it in me? Why am I willing to do violence to our relationship in order to get that thing? What is it that I need that thing to do? What is it, what is it? It's a huge problem if in my process of comparison I see anyone as more broken than me. Because while it may mean I'm exaggerating your brokenness, what it definitely means is that I am really out of touch with my own brokenness. I'm really out of touch with why I do what I do. And that's the believers in Corinth, and that's us when we compare. When there's jealousy and envy and drawing and forming teams and saying, we're part of this group and that makes us better. Nobody said, I follow Apollos and was secretly thinking, but I kind of wish I followed Paul, you know? They were thinking, I follow Apollos because Apollos is better than Paul, and that's where I am. I'm better than Paul. It's tempting for us to identify ourselves by how our brokenness and our fear and our struggles and our doubts and our anxieties, together with the good things, together with our talents and our intellects and our wealth and our backgrounds and our bodies compare us to those around us. But it's not the message of the gospel. The life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and all his righteousness put on me and all my brokenness put on him on the cross, that's what we mean when we talk about the gospel by the way, that tells me that my identity rests in him and that he loves me more profoundly and more deeply than I could ever begin to imagine. Paul puts it this way at the end of this chapter, which I think is just so beautiful. He says, don't boast in men because everything is already yours. Everything you need Whether it's Paul or Apollos or Peter, uh, Cephas and Peter are the same person, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all these things are yours. Why? Because you belong to Christ. And what does that mean? Christ is inextricably joined to the Father. You belong to Christ. Christ belongs with God. And so everything that God has that you could ever need, you already have. You already have. The opposite of this is this image. When we're we're trying to attain things that we already have, what we're like is we're like people who are blindfolded in the Louvre, the world's greatest collection of beauty and art, and we're making our way through it. We're spending the whole day in it, and seeing none of the beauty of it. And yeah, you can say, I've been to the Louvre, but you haven't experienced the beauty of it because you haven't seen the reality of what's already there, what's already there surrounding you. I don't need to compare myself to anybody else to know where I stand because the gospel already tells me that I stand holy and dearly loved in the presence of Christ. Everything that I need is already mine because I belong to Christ and Christ and the Father are one. In Christ, I already belong in the presence of God forever and I always will. That's the message of the gospel and that is glorious. So you don't need to earn this. You don't need to build this. You don't need to try to see where you stand on the continuum of am I gonna make the cut because it's not something that is found in how you compare to anybody else. It's the righteousness of Christ on you alone. Why then? Let me close with this, why do we need, need to take a hold of this in our lives? I'm gonna give you a few reasons. One, when we live by comparison, instead of contending together for the truth of the gospel, to be building our communities and making our families stronger, we're adopting a suspicious and sometimes adversarial relational posture. We're saying, depending on how much I trust you, I'm gonna draw a line and say, you can come this far with me, but no further. And the reality is, is you're all going to need people in this room to go further than that. We have communion next week. Here in this room, the tables will be up here, the elements will say things about it about what it means, we will say things like, this is all my hope and peace is Jesus' blood and righteousness. You're saying, I need, I need the the gift of Christ in my life to give me my sense of worth. And you're gonna come to this table and you're gonna kneel and you're gonna take this bread and this cup which represent the finished work of Christ on your behalf, his offering up himself. And that table right now is inviting you to a great and beautiful challenge. And that is to say, where are you even today competing with somebody else in this room and living in a a anti-gospel relationship with somebody else here because you're constantly trying to see how you measure up with them. And there's so much brokenness in that relationship. And it's so sad because... Some of these relationships in a room this size, some of us are just, we're so close to just being willing to say, I'm just gonna let that go. And the gospel says you don't have to do that. There's hope for that relationship. There's hope for your relationships. And that's what the Lord's table convicts us of, that there's hope for every broken thing in me because of this table that we're coming to next week. What would it look like for you this week to honestly speak in your own heart a name? A name of a person that you need peace with, whether they're in this room or in this city or a phone call away. And to begin to say, Christ is my foundation and Christ is my growth. I can enter into this pain and this brokenness marriages, friendships, you don't know. You don't know what 2011 is gonna hold for you relationally, but I'll tell you this. If the nature of your relationship is such where you are finding out what you're worth and where you stand by comparing yourself to other people, when those relationships go south, you are gonna be in opposite corners of the ring and you're gonna be ready to fight. And the gospel is going to be calling you, no, 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 no. Repent, repent, seek peace, rest in the finished work of Christ. The gospel asks us this, will you take it on yourself to declare to the world what gives you value and to do that by comparison? Or will you receive what the gospel says you're worth and that by the finished work of Christ? Are you tired of trying to declare to the world that you're worth something? That's exhausting. And the gospel says, you don't have to, plus it'll never work. The last reason why it's so important to get a hold of this is this. The gospel is beautiful. It's beautiful. The gospel is beautiful. It tells you everything you need for everything that God has called you to do and to be, he's already given you. His strength is made perfect in your weakness. My God will supply all my needs according to his riches and glory. How many verses are there in scripture like this that tell us this? And it's beautiful. It means you can relax and rest in the mercy and grace of Christ. Here's how beautiful the gospel is The God who made you takes your brokenness so seriously that the only remedy available for it was the cross of his son, Jesus Christ. And the cross so sufficiently deals with your brokenness that here's where it leaves your identity. It tells you this. You are in Christ completely righteous and so you don't have anything to prove. That in Christ you are completely forgiven and so you don't have anything to hide. And in Christ you are completely loved and so you have nothing to fear. In Christ you have nothing to prove, nothing to hide, nothing to fear, and that is a beautiful thing. And it's true already for those who are in Christ. This is the beauty of the Gospel. May you grow in the riches of the Gospel to the extent that our relationships, that people would look at the relationships here at Midtown and say, I see in the health of this community a deep, spiritual resonance with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we may proclaim the wonderful mysteries of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this fellowship. God, this past month or two have given me lots of occasion to think about your call on my life and my family's life to be in this city, in this place with these people. Father, I thank you for the times when I have been away, how you have caused my heart to miss them and to miss being here. Father, I thank you for the love that you are building uh, in this fellowship and and the way that my family is able to be a part of that. Father, I pray that you would grow us up. I pray that you would give us the courage to rest and what the gospel says about who we are and what we're worth, and that we would put aside comparison that leads to envy and strife and division. Father, I pray that you would give us courageous hearts to deal honestly with ourselves and why we do the things that we do, um, and and what it is that we're after, and that we would see the sufficiency that we have in, in you, and what you've given us, and who you tell us that we are in such an immovable way. Father, would you meet with us now in this time of reflection, and uh, Father, we just thank you that the gospel is true. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen.